Hey everybody, it's been a little while, hasn't it? My cross-country move took a little longer than expected. Finding a place to land took longer than expected, especially with a few false starts on that front. And then when I finally got into a place, suddenly we had an international health crisis on our hands. The subject matter of this retrogram deals directly with that. It directly informed the shows I chose to cover here, one of them in particular, the others kind of came along for the ride, and then I was surprised to be reminded that one of the other shows touched on that subject matter as well, in a weird sort of sci-fi way. If you are stressed out from hearing about the coronavirus outbreak nonstop in the news and on social media, if the very mention of it exhausts you, this retrogram may not be for you. And that's okay. I totally understand. It's okay to come back to it later, and let me say this, it's also okay to skip this one completely. I won't be upset if you do. We're living in some extraordinary times here, dealing with something that our generation, those of you who are around my age, for whom these shows are normally a warm, comfortable old blanket of familiarity and nostalgia, we've never had to deal with anything like this before. It's okay to tune out the news for a bit to regain your sanity. It's okay to tune out this podcast. That's why I'm here telling you this up front. Take care of yourself. A lot of people who already deal with mental health struggles, and hey, full disclosure, that includes me. A lot of people are having a very hard time with this. Take some time out. Step outside. Feel the sun on your face. Listen to some music. Watch some shows. Listen to some podcasts, even if they aren't this one. But also listen to your local and regional health officials and stay home. The only thing that'll get us through this is kindness, compassion, and other things that rhyme with love. Be kind to yourself and to those around you. And thanks for listening. Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Program number 7516, Going Viral, the week of April 14, 1975. Welcome to Retrogram, the podcast that picks a week between 1970 and 1990, gives all of that week's sci-fi, superhero, fantasy, and horror shows a fresh watch, and tries to find out if those shows have anything, anything at all, to say to us today. And you know, one or more of today's shows might, just might, have something to say to us in the here and now. Normally I make it a policy not to timestamp any particular retrogram because retrogram is supposed to take us back in time and not really dwell on the now. But as I am recording this, we are living in extraordinary times. Due to the coronavirus outbreak, everyone in the modern world is being asked to practice social distancing, isolating themselves to slow the spread of the virus enough that our admittedly ill-equipped healthcare system isn't completely drowned and perhaps to allow time for a cure or vaccine to be developed. Gatherings of more than 10 people in one place have been, well, 
strongly discouraged for the moment in some places and actually outlawed in others. People have suddenly been asked to either work from home or stop reporting to work, in some cases meaning they've been laid off indefinitely. And the crazy thing about it is nobody knows how long this will last. That situation, well, it means I have plenty of time to write and record a podcast, but it also directly informs why I chose this particular week. Although there's a totally accidental theme to this show as well. Every show being covered in this retrogram was broadcast in the UK. And while most of them eventually did make their way to the US, this is a thoroughly British retrogram. In the week leading up to April 14, 1975, the National Association of Broadcasters decided to designate the first hour of primetime as family hour viewing in the United States, while The Godfather Part II had just become the first sequel in movie history to win Best Picture at the Oscars. During the week of the 14th, the Federal Election Commission began operating under a board of commissioners appointed by President Ford. While a chorus line was performed for the first time, not on Broadway, but at the New York Shakespeare Festival. But since India didn't have its own launch facilities, it went into orbit. It went into orbit on top of a Soviet rocket booster. Now, a word of warning here. Doctor Who is going to get mentioned a lot here. When you're talking about British TV science fiction, especially in the 1970s, Doctor Who is a kind of 400-pound fish in a pretty large pond stocked with lots and lots of other tasty, smaller fish, Doctor Who serves as a useful touchstone when I'm introducing non-UK listeners to some of these other tasty, tasty fish. Anyone else hungry for fish all of a sudden? And during the week of April 14, 1975, children's television was getting weird. And for the grown-ups, maybe a little apocalyptic. <laughs> Sky, Episode 2, Juganet, aired Monday, April 14th on ITV by way of HTV, and I'll explain that in just a few minutes. The story so far. Bored with their parents' duck hunt, three teenagers, Arby, Jane, and Roy, drive a Land Rover into a wooded area. Arby discovers a young man, alone and nearly naked, in the forest. Assuming that the stranger is either injured or dead, Arby tries to help, only to discover that the boy, who he names Skye, is very much alive and unlike anyone he has ever met. Displaying powers of teleportation and telekinesis, Skye fears something called the Juganet and says he needs Arby's help. And that doesn't mean a roast beef sandwich. It seems as if the Earth itself is attacking Skye. Juganet Arby doesn't know what's going on as the tree branches and limbs try to hold Sky in place while he's pelted with leaves, but he does know he wants no part of it, at least until Sky telepathically begs him for help. But Arby doesn't know what he can do to help. And then, it's over. Sky falls to the ground, exhausted. He tells Arby, it's an accident that I am here. I am alien to this time. The living things that were attacking him were like antibodies fending off a disease. Sky worries that more powerful attempts to get rid of him will come, and that Arby, the only human being to know of Sky's existence, will face that danger as well. Sky senses someone outside and demands to know who it is. Oh, hey, it's Arby's sister, Jane. Now she knows of Sky's existence, so I guess she's in danger too. 
Jane's not terribly impressed by Skye's otherworldly mentions of something circular called the Juganet, placed on Earth for other travelers in time and space. Skye was thrown off course in time and knows nothing of this time, though if he concentrates he can hear the entire history of the human race in his mind. The wars, the bloodshed, the death. Arby brings Skye food and clothes, and with Jane, piles Skye into their father's vehicle, and they head, where else, to Arby and Jane's school. Roy, on a motorcycle, follows them, completely unaware that wherever Skye goes, any grass or plants on the ground tremble. Roy joins Arby and Jane at the school, but they have to hide. Roy's dad has followed him, thinking that Arby is leading Roy into a life of juvenile delinquency. And to be fair, Roy's dad does have a point. Skye uses his powers to break into the school so he can absorb more knowledge about the world in which he has found himself from the library, even though reading is a slow and cumbersome way to absorb information. Skye is particularly interested in a diagram of an underground cyclotron facility. This looks like the Juganet he's been talking about. But then the trees outside the library window shudder and Skye stands. Someone is coming. Someone who is not Jane. It's Roy's dad, and Skye uses his powers to knock him flat on his back without even so much as touching him. Roy's dad is awake, but kind of paralyzed, almost in a catatonic state. Skye says it's only temporary, and then returns to the library. Roy's dad does recover, and Roy hustles him out of the school, but that's not the end of it. Roy's dad goes to Arby and Jane's parents and tells them what happened, and tells them of the strange older boy who seemed to be telling Arby and Jane what to do. When Arby, Jane, and Skye step outside the school, the leaves go airborne again, and Skye calls out for help. But by the time Arby and Jane turn around, Skye is gone. They rush into the woods to try to find him. Arby and Jane's dad, with Roy and Roy's dad leading the way, also go looking in the woods. Near a dead tree, a burst of wind kicks up leaves and limbs alike, and then a bearded man in black robes is standing there, gasping as if he's just taken his first breath ever. In a ravine near this new arrival, Skye appears in a pool of light, crumples to the ground, and raises a hand to defend himself with his powers, only to be stopped by Arby, because whoever Skye thinks he's about to knock over, it's not the man in black, but a policeman. To be continued. Skye was one of those daring one-season wonders of British children's TV, teeming with enough menace to make a show for adults scary, it's in the same category with Children of the Stones, The Changes, Raven, and at least the first seasons of shows like Into the Labyrinth and Chalky. TV for kids in the UK, especially in the 70s, seemed to have a license to go off the scale on the creep factor. Even the opening titles are enough to fill you with dread. Kind of like Children of the Stones, there's nothing that's really visually scary on its own. It's actually kind of impressionistic and symbolic more than explicitly visual. But paired with the show's foreboding theme music, it's kind of terrifying. And the comparisons to those other shows are totally valid. Patrick Dromgold, the executive producer of Sky, was also executive producer of Children of the Stones, Into the Labyrinth, and Robin of Sherwood, among many others, including an early 90s syndicated show called both She-Wolf of London and Love and Curses. This menacing tone extends even to the end credits where the names of the cast and crew appear inside... What the hell is that? The silhouette of a man screaming? I'm in my late 40s, and this is terrifying stuff. It's actually something of a minor miracle that we in the 21st century can watch Sky in any form at all. 
Network, the publisher that has brought so many gems of British TV past to DVD, released the complete series of Sky on DVD in 2009, and time hadn't been kind to the original tapes. Episodes 3 and 7, and by the way, episode 7 is the last one where the whole story comes together, those episodes were missing from the archives, and they were sourced from, let's just say, unauthorized personal copies that an employee of HTV had dubbed onto a home videotape format when the master tapes back when they existed. Therefore, episodes 3 and 7 have all the, shall we say, variable tracking issues and very poor color fidelity that you get from old consumer-grade videotape with audio issues to match. But if not for those personal copies that were made at some point before the original master tapes were lost or deteriorated beyond playability, we wouldn't be able to watch the show in its entirety. This is just episode two, however, so this is about as high quality as it gets. It's not the level of TLC that, say, classic Doctor Who episodes get when they were restored to DVD. Like the rest of those shows that Patrick Drongel produced, Sky was produced by HTV, Harlech Television, which held the independent television license in Wales and the West Country from 1968 through 1997, though a succession of buyers kept the HTV identity around through the early 2000s, at which time it was rebranded ITV Wales and ITV West. Sky was the creation of a pair of writers whose names will be very familiar to fans of 1970s Doctor Who, Bob Baker and Dave Martin. Bob and Dave were collectively known as the Bristol Boys, and they began their writing partnership on a made-for-TV movie project at HTV called Thick as Thieves. And lo and behold, who directed that movie? Patrick Drongle. Bob and Dave went on to write for other HTV shows, including Arthur of the Britons and Pretenders, but also turned in numerous Doctor Who scripts for the BBC at roughly the same time, including The Claws of Axos and The Mutants. Their combined skills with plot, character, and dialogue won them the plum assignment of writing the Doctor Who 10th anniversary story, The Three Doctors. Their later Doctor Who scripts saw them writing out Sarah Jane Smith and writing in a new and very popular creation of their own, a robot dog named K-9, in 1977. Since K-9 was an element of a freelance script that the BBC adopted and continued, rather than being an element that the BBC producers of Doctor Who conceived and asked their freelance writers to use. This meant the K-9's continued appearances meant a steady stream of income for them both. In 1979, Bob Baker took a job as script editor for the TV detective series Shoestring, and Martin went on to a solo writing career. After Shoestring, Baker continued to work on ideas for children's TV, including the very popular 80s series Into the Labyrinth, another HTV series which ran for three seasons, the first season of which even made it to the U.S. as part of Nickelodeon's programming block called The Third Eye. In 2000, Bob Baker wrote material for Peter Gabriel's turn-of-the-millennium multimedia spectacular OVO, a show devised for the London Millennium Dome. Dave Martin lived long enough to see Doctor Who come back to life in 2005 and use K-9 again in 2006, but Dave died in 2007. Bob Baker, however, took advantage of K-9's highly publicized return and used it to finally realize an ambition he had held since the late 80s to launch an original series built around K-9 without any Doctor Who elements. That series lasted one season and was made in Australia, and Baker keeps tirelessly working on reviving it in some form without much luck. But Baker has also been writing or co-writing Wallace and Gromit shorts and full-length movies 
one of which, 2005's Wallace and Gromit Curse of the Were-Rabbit, won an Oscar for Best Animated Picture. Which means that Bob Baker, who is still with us in his 80s, is the only Doctor Who writer whose other work has ever won an Academy Award. Starring as Skye is Mark Harrison, an actor with something of a short resume. In fact, Skye was his second credited TV gig, and here he is starring in it with giant blue scleral shells covering his eyes. Considering how much Skye squints in every episode of this show, those had to be excruciatingly painful. But when they're hit with just the right light and special effects are blue screened in to his eyes, it's disturbingly effective. Mark went on to appear in such TV shows as The Year Next Year, Paul Dark, and The Oneidan Line. But here, there's something really striking about his appearance, if not necessarily his performance. He really does seem otherworldly, and one name that kept popping up in my head as a comparison for how strange and skinny he seems here, Bowie. He's almost like a young David Bowie in this role. Which, of course, Bowie was young at the time this show went out, so perhaps that's a silly comparison. But if you picture a very young David Bowie, you've got an idea of how Sky looks, at the very least. And as for this episode, it's a really weird episode of a really weird show. To be fair, I wasn't in the UK in 1975, watching this unfold week by week, and Sky was never broadcast in the US. I binge-watched it on DVD a few years ago, and then re-watched this episode for this podcast. There's a kind of a pagan-inspired environmental message to the whole thing, and eventually, well into the seven-episode run, we are finally told that humanity's reliance on machines, presumably including the time travel machine that dumped Sky in 1975, is killing the world. Though, what Sky and his enemy, the bearded guy in black, whose name is Goodchild, by the way, what they have to do with that message playing out is kind of vague, even by the end of the show. I always find it interesting how much pagan mythology winds up in these British kids' shows from the 70s. At some point, there has to have been a reaction to that because it stopped happening. Aside from some truly exceptional shows like the Sarah Jane Adventures, British children's programming anymore tends to be almost indistinguishable from what's coming out of the United States though that could be because each country is trying to sell shows to the other in this day and age. Sky is memorable because it's so unique and just so weird. Tomorrow People, Season 3, Episode 8, A Man for Emily, Part 1, aired Wednesday, April 16th on ITV. The story so far. A group of youngsters led by a young man named John have developed extraordinary powers, including telepathy, telekinesis, and even an ability to teleport or jaunt. They're the next evolution of the human being, not Homo sapiens, but Homo superior. They're the Tomorrow People. From a hidden, well-equipped base, and with the help of a sentient computer called Tim, they fend off threats to humanity of both human and alien origin, all while trying to lie low and not reveal their identities or true powers to the rest of the world, fearing that the world's governments would seek to weaponize those powers. Some of the Tomorrow People come and go as they get older, taking on risky assignments that we never see, but their mission is always the same. Save the world, sometimes from itself, so that the entire human race might have a chance to evolve as they have. 
A Man for Emily, Part 1. The Fastest Gun. On a vehicle slowly making its way through deep space, a young man named Elmer is asleep, not lying down, but standing up in a kind of padded rack, almost like he doesn't rate getting in bed. He's awakened by Emily, a somewhat bossy young lady who thinks he should already be awake and working. She's not happy, and she says this just proves what her mama says, that Elmer is lazy. Anyway, after that bit of encouragement, Emily says that the ship has dropped out of faster-than-light travel and is recharging in a parking orbit over a primitive planet teeming with life. Oh, wait, that looks a lot like the Apollo 17 photo of Earth out the window. In the control center of the ship, Emily's mama is indeed annoyed with Elmer. She's been waiting for him to come push the two buttons that work the food machine so she and Emily can have breakfast. It's too bad, Mama muses, that Elmer wasn't born a girl, because as a boy he's expected to toil all the time in service of women. The look on his face says that Elmer kind of regrets that, too. It turns out Emily is his older sister. Elmer is dismissed to go see to the rest of his duties without being given time to eat his breakfast, while Emily and Mama watch the TV transmissions originating from Earth. If they were natives of Earth, they'd know that they were watching old westerns, but since they're not, they think they're seeing depictions of life all over Earth as it is right now, and they are horrified to see the male-dominated society that's being depicted. That's just wrong. Still, hey, let's send Elmer down there to get some fresh food, and maybe just for laughs to see how he reacts to being on his own. The ship manufactures a set of clothes for him. Boots, spurs, a ten-gallon hat, a belt a gun, the works, based on the transmissions that have been received from Earth. These clothes should make Elmer blend right in, but, Emily warns him, don't get any big ideas from seeing that male-dominated society in action. In Tomorrow People HQ, let's call that TPHQ for short, Tim has been keeping an eye on the ship that suddenly dropped out of light speed over Earth. According to the rules of civilized galactic society, it's perfectly acceptable if a couple of the Tomorrow people pay the ship a visit to see if the crew requires help. Though the younger members of the Tomorrow people, Stephen and Tyso, are eager to go, John decides it would probably be best if he and Elizabeth make first contact. They don their spacesuits and jaunt into space near the ship. Aboard the ship, Emily and her mama notice the two interlopers, and the ship brings Elizabeth aboard, leaving John adrift in space. He jaunts back to TPHQ, where Elizabeth contacts him via radio. She's met the women running the ship. They seem friendly, but she thinks she should gather some more information before anyone else visits the ship. On Earth, wandering down a row of high street shops in London, is Elmer, decked out as if he just walked off the set of an old western. Fringed shirt, cowboy hat, boots, spurs, and the gun on his hip. Just like in the transmissions. He sticks out painfully like a sore thumb in 1975 England. In the local market, Elmer thinks it's perfectly okay to pick up a banana, bite through its skin and all, and put it back when it's not to his liking. But what is to his liking? Apples! Raw fish! And he has no idea he's supposed to pay for any of this before he walks out the door. But hey, Mama told him what to do. Elmer draws his gun and shoots the man running the market, and then walks out with the food. The reaction of the other shoppers tells Elmer that maybe this wasn't what he was supposed to do. He breaks into a run. Tim informs John that the local police radio traffic indicates where Elmer is, and maybe John and Stephen should try to find him before any more harm is done.
Stephen jaunts into the middle of the market, further surprising the shoppers, and heals the man that Elmer shot before disappearing into thin air. On the ship, Elizabeth has been notified by John that Elmer's causing trouble on Earth. But Mama and Emily, well, they don't seem to care, and they have no way to bring him back to the ship. He's carrying a device that he has to activate on his end to come back. Furthermore, Elizabeth quickly gathers that none of the ship's occupants know how to steer or repair the ship. It's entirely on automatic. As for the menial tasks, Elmer does all of that work, and if anything happens to him, Emily and her mama will be in even worse trouble than they're already in, whether they realize it or not. Elmer innocently walks into a pub still dressed as a cowboy, still carrying a hat full of fish and apples, and, hey, mama told him how this works. Whiskey. Double. The barman obliges, and Elmer downs the drink in one giant gulp, and <laughs> it's not what he expected. Hey, let's have another. In fact, let's have a round for everyone. But when it's time to pay the barman, yeah, Elmer pulls out the gun again. Here, old son, have as many drinks as you want. The barman motions to one of his regulars sitting at the other end of the bar. Go get help. The man quietly slips off and calls the police. When Tim and Stephen jaunt into the middle of the pub, it's gotten crazy. Elmer is having a shootout with the police who have just arrived, apparently unaware that the gun he's carrying can only get off six shots, one of which he already fired at the market. John convinces Elmer that Mama sent him and that he needs to put this matter transporter belt on, because Mama said so. But rather than jaunting Elmer out of danger, it causes him to have a fit of the giggles like it's tickling him, and then he falls unconscious. The police start breaking down the door of the pub. They're out of time. John and Stephen jaunt back to TPHQ, but Elmer remains blissfully asleep. To be continued. Now, we've covered Tomorrow People before, so we've already talked about how it was the latest in a long line of ITV shows that, accurately or not, was stuck with the label, ITV's answer to Doctor Who, even though it was originally produced by Thames Television. That same label was also somewhat unfairly applied to the previous holder of Tomorrow People's time slot on ITV, Ace of Wands, another show that Retrogram has covered. However, Tomorrow People lasted long enough and developed enough of its own internal mythology that it's probably worthy of that description, and it has since been revived twice. A complete reboot in the early 90s, and most recently in the United States, is one of those glossy teen-oriented shows produced by Greg Berlanti on the CW for the 2013-2014 season. And I almost forgot, I should note that Big Finish Productions also revived The Tomorrow People with the original TV cast, the original 70s TV cast, in audio form. This episode is the first part of the third season's penultimate multi-part story, and is probably the most lightweight story of that season, but it is also notable for being the television debut of one Peter Davison, filmed when he was just 23. Now, Peter had done some TV commercials before, but this was his series television acting debut. Peter very quickly gained a reputation as a reliable and very good actor, which is why he was only 29 when he was cast as the fifth incarnation of Doctor Who. And to be honest, Peter may be the best thing about this ridiculous episode, but even for Peter, it's early days and he's still honing his craft. It's kind of sad that he didn't have a better debut vehicle than this story, which required him to do a silly American Deep South accent, or at least the best British impersonation thereof. 
and wear a white fright wig, and yet he throws himself into the part eagerly and is almost the only part of it that can be taken seriously. It's funny when he tells the man in the market that his name is Elmer, and the man says, Your name's not Elmer. You're, you're that bloke on the telly. It's like someone was predicting Peter Davison's future right there because he has been such a fixture of British television since then. Playing the part of Emily was Sandra Dickinson, who was actually born in the U.S. and had been working in the U.K. for some time. She was a bit older than Peter Davison and had been in TV and films in the U.K. dating back to the early 1970s. It's important to note that Sandra had just gotten a divorce from her British-born first husband, which was the whole reason she had moved to Britain in the first place. Just a few years later, she married Peter Davison. Their daughter is Georgia Moffat, who is married to another former Doctor Who, David Tennant. Sandra and Peter's marriage lasted until 1994. You might remember Sandra from appearances in Superman 3, Supergirl, Space Truckers, and Ready Player One. On TV, Sandra was Trillian in the BBC's 1981 adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and she also appeared on Triangle, The Two Ronnies, HBO's Tales from the Crypt, and she's done plenty of animation voice work, too, including The Amazing World of Gumball and the modern remake of Thunderbirds Are Go. As a minor side note, she was the model for Ray Harryhausen's sculpt for the face and body of the Medusa in the original Clash of the Titans film. So, here's the thing. The ideas behind this story, the notion that, to a lot of the world, American culture seems obsessed with violence and gunplay, that's not a bad idea. And this certainly isn't the only treatment that idea has ever gotten. There is a story there, and there are ideas to be explored and exploited, and that culture is ripe for critique, both then and now. But, tomorrow people is taking that idea and playing it for laughs. It's no big deal when the guy at the market gets shot. I mean, the ladies in the market play the horror and shock of it, but Stephen shows up, completely heals the man and his clothes before the ambulance arrives, and then vanishes, and it's all good fun because now the ambulance service guys are going to run in there, and nothing's wrong. In 1974 and 75, allowing for when the episode was shot and when it was shown, people just didn't walk into public spaces and start shooting. Well, maybe okay... They did, maybe, but very rarely, and it wasn't such a common thing that you had lockdown drills, and it wasn't such a common thing that people had the phrase shelter in place on the tips of their tongues. And you didn't have a significant fraction of an entire society deciding that, hey, you know, this happens so often that I need to be packing heat 24-7. I guess all of this is a really wordy way of saying that perhaps the episode hasn't aged well, Somewhere between playing deadly violence for fun and being the umpteenth piece of genre entertainment to adopt the trope of women's lib gone mad, while simultaneously costuming the women on the ship in leotards and making a male fantasy scenario out of it, this really doesn't live up to a lot of the cool ideas and interesting world-building stuff that the Tomorrow People did manage to accomplish in its years on the air. Survivors, Season 1, Episode 1, The Fourth Horseman, aired Wednesday, April 16th on BBC One. Abby Grant has not a care in the world. She lives in a huge country estate, her son Peter is off at boarding school, and her husband's job is bringing in enough for Abby to afford a full-time housekeeper. But beyond the walls of her home, something is happening out there in the world. 
Peter calls her from his school. A stomach bug, or maybe it's the flu, but whatever it is, it's wreaking havoc on the student population so much that they've closed the school off from the outside world. Abby's housekeeper hasn't been able to reach her sister and asks for some time off to check on her. When Abby and the housekeeper get to the train station, they're informed that the usual timetable is out the window due to power outages and other delays. On her car radio, Abby hears that half the world away, some of New York City is without power and the governor has declared a state of emergency. In London, a nurse named Jenny Richards tries to comfort her roommate who is suffering from what she thinks is the flu. It is going around, you know. When her roommate complains of painful lumps under her arms and constant chills, even though her fever is soaring, Jenny tries to call a doctor, but the phone is dead. Jenny sets out on foot to find help. Back at the train station, there's a knock on the window, waking Abby up. It's after dark, and her husband has just arrived. But as they drive home, Abby feels a bit flushed. Maybe it's just because she fell asleep in the car. Or maybe it's not. Jenny reaches the hospital on foot, and it's jam-packed lines of people out into the streets. She sees a doctor who she works with, but he warns her that the illness is worse than is being made known to the public. There have been 70 deaths in the past week here alone, and there's no way that a doctor can leave to pay a house call to Jenny's roommate right now. The government has issued the order to keep the death statistics under wraps to prevent a public panic. All Jenny does find out is that the incubation time of the disease is only six days, and she needs to scrub up because more help is needed. At home with the Grants. Abby listens as her husband talks about rumors he's heard about the disease spreading like wildfire through the populations of China and India. But hey, we're all right. We live in the country. Almost right on cue, the power goes out. Nothing really left to do but go to bed. Abby awakens later, shaking with chills. Whatever it is, she has it. Her husband tries to call for medical help, but the phones are still dead. And they live in the country. In London, Jenny and her friend the doctor get back to her roommate. And she's dead. Jenny's doctor friend quietly tells her, get out of London. Because if the deaths continue to skyrocket, this won't be the only disease making the rounds. Cholera, typhoid, all the diseases associated from dead bodies lying around, they'll all make a comeback. Get out of the city before the dead outnumber the living. And then he leaves to go back to work, admitting that he, almost certainly, has been exposed. She is stunned. When Jenny sets out on foot, a group of men gather to assault her, but she escapes. Eventually, she encounters others making their way out of London on foot, with little more than suitcases and the clothes on their back, also headed into the country. Jenny keeps walking, but when a storm hits, she seeks shelter in an abandoned car to sleep for the night. Abby Grant wakes up, drenched in her own sweat. The birds are singing outside. Her husband isn't in bed with her. In the kitchen, mold has grown on the butter set out on the table, and the flowers are dead. Abby has been out for days. The power is still out, the phones still don't work, and her husband lies dead on the sofa. She gets dressed and steps outside the house, going to knock on her neighbor's doors to check on them. Dead bodies lie everywhere. In the village church, people died in the pews, waiting for a deliverance from God that never arrived. Jenny has been walking for days without seeing a single living person until she stumbles across a tent. She calls out to the man sleeping in the tent, who turns out to be very much alive, but he wants her to keep her distance. 
He doesn't want anyone getting near him. He doesn't want their germs. He appears to be homeless, and he says he'll be fine. They'll all be fine. It's just like getting through the war. Jenny keeps walking along the highway. A car passes by, the driver oblivious. Aside from the man in the tent, this is the only sign of life Jenny has seen in days. The driver of the car is Abby Grant, speeding toward the boarding school her son attends. When she arrives, she finds it quiet as a grave. In the bunk room where her son and some of his classmates slept, there are bodies in the beds. But not Peter's. His bed has been made, and he's not there. Abby keeps searching, finally seeing the glow of a lantern in a window. A man lies face down at a table, static, from a radio nearby. But wait, the man is alive. He uses a hearing aid, and he had turned it off to sleep, trying to save his batteries. He tells Abby that Peter, along with a teacher and twenty other boys who were showing no symptoms, took camping equipment and left the school, trying to write out the worst of it, without staying cooped up with those who were sick or dying. This man has no idea where they went, though, and he is the only survivor at the school. All of the other students, the teachers, they're all dead. It's night, and Jenny finds a fellow traveler slumped against a tree, shivering, even though he's built a campfire. He has the disease, and he urges her to stay away. She adds some wood to his fire, but it's all she can do for him. He's dead by morning. Jenny checks his rucksack. Maybe there's something useful in there. No, he didn't bring food. He didn't bring medicine. He had withdrawn quite a stash of cash from the bank, though, and it's all useless now. At the school, the sole survivor that Abby has found warns her that the dead may be the lucky ones. The survivors will have to rebuild the world, and it won't be an easy task. We're the generation that landed a man on the moon, he says, and yet very few people in the modern world have the skills needed to fashion crude tools from stone. Already, electricity and running water seem to be things of the past, and for his own part, he's two batteries away from being deaf. He probably won't make it very long after that. Abby returns home, cleans up, and cuts off most of her hair. She packs her belongings, loads them into her car, and douses her home and her husband's body in gasoline, setting fire to the house before she leaves. Her world, as she knew it, is gone forever. She sets out to find Peter and any other survivors that she can find. The end, and also the beginning. Survivors was created by Terry Nation, who had gained a lot of capital at the BBC with his creation and continued nurturing of the Daleks in Doctor Who. Terry's main line of work prior to Doctor Who wasn't really sci-fi, though he did write three 1962 episodes of the BBC anthology series Out of This World. Virtually the entirety of that series is now lost to the ages. Terry fell into the Dalek-creating business out of desperation when his regular gig as a comedy writer for Tony Hancock ended over creative differences. And from that moment, there was no going back. The royalties from the continued appearances of the Daleks were bread and butter, and he also turned in scripts for Out of the Unknown, Department S, The Saint, The Avengers, Thriller, and The Persuaders. Survivors was the first series Terry Nation created, and it ran three seasons, though once again, creative differences reared their head, and Terry left Survivors in the hands of producer Terence Dudley. And he then went on to pitch the BBC on a new space opera called Blake's Seven, which ran for four years. Though Terry again left that series in the hands of its producer and script editor, and emigrated to the United States, where he eventually went to work on MacGyver. We lost Terry in 1997.
the magnificent Carolyn Seymour stars as Abby Grant. Carolyn was just a few years into a TV acting career when she won this starring role, and she's been a fixture on TV on both sides of the Atlantic ever since. She moved on from Survivors fairly quickly, appearing only in the first season, and then landed guest starring roles on Space 1999 and The Return of the Saint, and then a lot of her credits started happening in the United States. Zorro the Gay Blade and Mr. Mom on the big screen, with TV roles in Heart to Heart, The Greatest American Hero, The Return of the Man from Uncle, Blue Thunder, Magnum P.I., Otherworld, the 80s revivals of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone, Tales from the Dark Side, three different roles on Star Trek The Next Generation, The Flash, Babylon 5, and a recurring role on Quantum Leap as Zoe the Evil Leaper. In recent years, she has concentrated on voice work for animation and video games, as well as returning to the role of Abby for Big Finish Productions' revival of Survivors in audio form. I highly recommend Survivors a la Big Finish, by the way, but be warned that it's more grim and even more adult than the television series. There's a speech by the man with the hearing aid at the school that really is Terry Nation laying out the stakes for his audience. I don't usually play audio clips in retrogram, but I had already isolated this one scene for my daily Today in Geek History podcast, The Escape Pod, and so it's worth playing again here. Now, the aftermath of this sickness will be more terrible than we can imagine. The real survivors will be those who can come through what must follow. What is important is learning again. Things you've never even needed to consider before, for instance. That. Could you make that? Where does the raw material come from? Do you know? Well, some sort of oil product, I suppose. Or before that, tallow or animal fat. But could you make it? Something as simple as a candle, starting from scratch. Well, I could probably find out. It must be in a book somewhere. All right, take it from there. A book will tell you how electricity is generated, but could you do it? Right from the very beginning. Find the metal in the earth, dig it up, refine it, turn it into wire. Now, between that and the homeless character, who does go on to become a semi-regular, by the way, resulting in one of the darkest storylines that the series would ever do, it's easy to get the impression that Terry Nation is telling Britain's post-war generation that they're too soft, they're not tough enough, modern life is too easy. Terry is far from the only writer who has ever put that view forth, by the way. But there are some other things to unpack here that may be more relevant to us in the age of coronavirus. The man who died trying to leave civilization behind with a sack of cash, that to me may be the real takeaway from the first episode of Survivors. A virus or a disease doesn't care how well stocked your bank account is. No amount of money will curry favor with a rapidly spreading and frequently fatal condition. Money is a construct that people have agreed upon. Well, some people. Just try to spend pounds sterling in Miami and see how far you get. People agree on the value of the money, and from there the value of goods and services and labor is assigned. But here's the thing. If everyone just has suddenly agreed that none of that f***ing matters, money becomes a meaningless thing. And that brings us back to good old 2020, where you're probably, hopefully, listening to this while doing some social distancing. Before anyone raises their hackles into the mesosphere and says, Money doesn't matter. That's communism! because somebody almost certainly will. Keep that character in mind. A man who died trying to run from a disease with money that he wouldn't live long enough to spend. Money that is meaningless if society and its banking system have collapsed. 
There comes a point where the only capital worth spending or earning is kindness and compassion. And we, my friends, may be rapidly nearing that point. Let's be better than the guy who dies sitting at his campfire slumped against a tree with a sack of useless cash. If we can agree on the notion of a monetary system and its value, surely we can set that system aside and agree that lives are more important. And if we can't agree on that, well, here's a show from 45 years ago that shows us where that leads. Doctor Who Season 12, Episode 17, Revenge of the Cybermen, Part 1, aired Saturday, April 19th on BBC One. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet, Gallifrey, and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions, Writing wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. If the Doctor is mortally wounded, he's capable of regenerating, but this comes at the cost of a complete change of both appearance and personality. His current sidekicks in the TARDIS are headstrong journalist Sarah Jane Smith and bumbling but well-meaning Navy Doctor Harry Sullivan. And since earlier in the season, they've been separated from the TARDIS, which was waylaid by the Time Lords, who wanted to ensure the Doctor's cooperation on a covert mission they assigned him on the home planet of the Daleks. The Time Travelers were, however, given a time ring that will return them to the TARDIS. Revenge of the Cybermen, Part 1 the Time Ring brings the Doctor, Sarah, and Harry to Space Station Nerva, which they also visited earlier in the season. Which they also visited earlier in the season. Can we say saving some serious money by reusing the sets? But this is Nerva thousands of years before the Doctor's previous visit, and the TARDIS is nowhere to be seen. The Doctor thinks they've arrived ahead of it. Harry says he'd like to hang on to that Time Ring if the Doctor is done with it, but it vanishes into thin air when he tries to take it. Typical Time Lord technology. The Doctor opens the door to step out into the station's corridor, but when he does, a corpse falls into the room. Harry does a quick examination and says the man's been dead for weeks, though the sterile atmosphere of the station has kept him from decomposing. And this is just the first corpse. The corridor is littered with them. Is the entire crew dead? No. Unknown to the Doctor and his friends, a weary-looking crew member is in the communications section, warning an approaching ship away from the space station. Space Station Nerva is under quarantine due to a plague infection. Turn back now. It turns out that there are only four survivors of whatever disease has hit Nerva. Commander Stevenson, First Officer Lester, the guy manning the communicator, and a civilian named Professor Kelman. That's it. That's all. Everyone else is dead. But Stevenson has his orders. Nerva is here to serve as a kind of lighthouse to help spacecraft avoid a newly discovered asteroid, which poses a navigational hazard to travel and trade, and Stevenson will continue with that assignment, well, until he can't. But due to the infection, he can't exactly summon help, so it's a crew of three, plus the sarcastic, ill-tempered Kelman, until further notice. The communications guy gets a very faint call, but it ends just as suddenly as it began, and he has no idea who is on the other end of the call. There are no ships nearby, so the only place it could have come from is Voga, the asteroid. 
Kellman is dismissive of this idea, and as usual, expresses this in the most insulting manner possible. Nothing's alive on Voga. He's been down there, and he's really annoyed when this unidentified signal is entered into the communications log. Really annoyed. Commander Stevenson and Lester, in the meantime, have more pressing matters to worry about. Someone has opened a door in a section of the station that was sealed off in a desperate attempt to contain the plague, a section of the station where there should be no living thing left. They arm themselves and go to investigate. Meanwhile, on Voga, the white-haired alien who is making that call to Nerva, he's dead. His body is brought before the Vogan leader, who really just wants this dead body dragged out of his office. Meet Voris, the ambitious leader of Voga. Even though the Vogans live underground, Voris has a dream of leading his people out of their catacomb-bound existence back to the surface, but they live in fear of the Cybermen. To this end, Voris has cultivated a human contact, someone on the space station, to help in the age-old fight between the Cybermen and Voga. But why was the dead Vogan trying to contact that human prematurely? On Nerva, the communications guy gets up to stretch his legs and turns to see a metallic, snake-like creature slinking toward him. With Stevenson and Lester gone, there's no help for him. He eventually fights the robotic snake off, but not before it has, well, bitten him. It injected him with something. He falls to the ground, and Professor Kelman walks in completely unconcerned about this. In fact, he steps over the man's body to take the communications log tape, getting rid of any evidence of that call from Voga. Then Kelman stops. He hears voices on the other side of one of the station's ubiquitous sliding doors. The Doctor, Sarah, and Harry continue exploring, stopping only because they've come to one of the station's ubiquitous sliding doors. Stevenson and Lester rush in from behind them, guns at the ready. They're trespassers on a space station that really shouldn't have any trespassers. The door opens, and Kelman motions for Commander Lester to come in, neatly setting the Doctor and friends up to take the fall for the attack on the communications officer. That officer is still alive, but pulsing, glowing veins line his face. He's the latest victim of the plague. Stevenson blames the doctor for opening sealed doors and allowing the infection to spread, and prepares to shoot his own communications officer. There's no cure, and it would be a mercy killing. The doctor gets between the gun and the fallen man and asks Stevenson to let him help. Between the doctor and Harry, surely something can be learned about this disease that the station's own medical personnel, who were conveniently among the first to die, never had a chance to find. Kelman suggests executing the interlopers instead, and then slinks back to his quarters, pulling out some kind of covert surveillance device to spy on the control room, where he sees the doctor pointing out to Stevenson that the virus leaves scratches on the deck plating, takes the tape out of the communications log device, and does other things that are clearly not the work of a virus. When Stevenson explains the station's mission and mentions Voga, it all snaps into place for the doctor. Voga is renowned for being a planetoid made almost entirely of gold, a mineral which is deadly to the Cybermen. He thinks the Cybermen are almost certainly involved in what's happening here. Kelman turns off his spy camera and pulls out another communications device, tapping out a Morse code-like message. Who's receiving that message? Hello, you've reached the Cybermen. We're cyber-busy at the moment, so please leave a cyber message, and we'll return your cyber call as soon as we cyber-conveniently can. Thanks for calling the Cybermen. Harry, Sarah, and Lester examine the communications officer, and he's not in good shape. Lester says that the time between first signs of infection and death is measured in mere minutes. And just like that, the man is dead. The doctor is certain now that this is no naturally occurring plague and goes off to look for further evidence. 
Harry, Lester, and Stevenson go to discuss the plague further. The doctor's search leads him to Kelman's quarters, where he quickly finds Kelman's communications gear, and then hides because he hears someone coming. Kelman returns to his quarters, finding evidence that someone has been searching through his stuff. Someone who might have no place to have hidden except under the bed. Kelman sets a trap, electrifying the floor of his quarters and then leaving, locking the door from the outside. Even the doctor's sonic screwdriver isn't much help here. And in the communications room, left alone, Sarah Jane Smith is about to become the next victim of the metallic snake. To be cyber continued. Revenge of the Cybermen was written by Jerry Davis, who had been Doctor Who's script editor toward the end of William Hartnell's era in the mid-1960s. Jerry is, along with Dr. Kit Pedler, the co-creator of the Cybermen, and if you watch the closing credits closely on modern Doctor Who episodes featuring the Cybermen, which, as I record this, they were just featured in the season-closing two-parter of Jodie Whittaker's second season, you'll see that Jerry and Kit still get a credit as the creators of the Cybermen. In addition to The Tenth Planet, the 1966 four-parter that first introduced the Cybermen, Jerry wrote or co-wrote The Tomb of the Cybermen and The Highlanders, the historically inspired and very non-science fiction story that introduced the second Doctor's most enduring and loyal companion, Scotsman Jamie McCrimmon. Revenge of the Cybermen was actually a replacement for another story Jerry wrote, Return of the Cybermen, that was turned down by the 1970s producers of Doctor Who. But again, at the time I'm recording this, Big Finish Productions has announced that they're going back to that rejected script, complete with Tom Baker, though I'm sure there will be some changes from the original, given that the actors who played Harry Sullivan and Sarah Jane Smith have both left us. This replacement was Jerry's final contribution to Doctor Who. He was also the co-creator of the great early 70s BBC series Doomwatch, and went on to become one of the four writers who got screenplay credit on the 1980 Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen movie, The Final Countdown. You know, the one with the time-traveling USS Nimitz. Jerry Davis died in 1991, but the Cybermen live on. Now, returning for a moment to the rejected return of the Cybermen, that script had that title because the Cybermen had not headlined a Doctor Who story since the 1960s, completely skipping the third Doctor's era. Comics, novels, and Big Finish Productions audio stories have rectified that strange gap in the Cybermen's resume of plaguing all the Doctor's lives. But on TV, the Cybermen were almost a no-show for John Pertwee's entire era, appearing once in a fleeting montage of things the Doctor feared, and in a brief film clip to show that some Cybermen had been captured in a kind of multi-dimensional menagerie of different life forms in a later episode. So here we are in 1975, and they hadn't appeared in their own story since December 1968, so a seven-year gap there, definitely the return of the Cybermen. Okay, Stevenson and Lester arm themselves with, uh, at the very least, semi-automatic guns that look like Uzis. Okay, can I just say that Uzi's on a space station, a space station whose corridors have huge windows, that's a really bad idea. You know what's an even worse idea? Using an Uzi to mercy kill a plague victim. Sure, he might be better off dead, but you're about to splatter infected blood all over the place. See, the Tomorrow People is onto something with this whole use-the-gun-to-solve-every-problem notion. But you'd think any reasonable adult writing the script would have seen the huge problem with this. The doctor asks the communications guy, do you mean there are now 13 satellites of Jupiter? 
I mean, I get it. This was written in 1974, probably shot in 1974, and aired in 1975. But um, it, it's set in the far future, and I just now Googled it, and Jupiter has 79 moons. The Doctor is incredulous that Jupiter has more than 12 moons in this story set in the far future. Oops. Now, this is the first time we see the seal of Rassilon, a design that sort of looks like an Irish take on the infinity symbol inside a circle, which was reused the following season and has been reused ever since as the symbol of the Time Lords. Now, since the Vogans wear this symbol and a large carved version of the symbol was hanging on the wall, the obvious answer here is that it was just economical to reuse it. And who would ever notice, aside from everyone who has ever watched this episode in the 45 years since it aired? Keep in mind, home videotaping was a super high-end luxury in the mid-70s, so the producers of Doctor Who, and probably every other show in production anywhere at that time, thought nothing of reusing expensive props and costume pieces. But that gets us to the fun part. Can we retcon this so there is a reason for the Time Lord symbol to be there? Thanks to the modern relaunch of Doctor Who, yes we can. It's safe to say that if the Daleks and the Santarans and the Zygons were combatants in the Time War, the Cybermen probably insisted on being there, too. This episode makes a point to mention that Voga suddenly appeared in our solar system 50 years ago, 50 years before this story, and was captured by Jupiter's gravity. Later parts of the story reveal that Voga is made of gold and is thus a source of gold dust, which clogs Cybermen respirators and kills them. Gold is a vital weapon against the Cybermen. It could be that the Time Lords dropped Voga into Earth's solar system when it appeared, specifically to slow the Cybermen down and perhaps thwart some action that they were going to take in the future. The 1986 season, Trial of a Time Lord, shows that the Time Lords do have the technology to move entire worlds in space and time, so Voga and its population may have been drafted into the Time War by the Time Lords and perhaps given a little bit of a technological boost which might explain why something that we now recognize as the symbol of the Time Lords is all over this planet that seemingly has nothing to do with the Time Lords. That's just my theory, anyway. There are probably novels or comics or audio stories, or just plain fanfic that presents an alternate explanation. The Metallic Snake, by the way, was the first 1970s appearance of the Cybermats, rat-like creatures that have been cyber-converted. They first appeared in the 1960s stories Tomb of the Cybermen and the Wheel in Space, and the modern Doctor Who series has used them too in the episode's closing time, and most recently in the season finale of Jodie Whittaker's second season as the Doctor. It's funny, I had forgotten until I rewatched this episode that it too has a plague angle, so I hope I haven't really triggered everybody at this point, but isn't it a weird coincidence this aired within days of the premiere of Survivors? Granted, the settings of Survivors and this Doctor Who story are quite literally worlds apart, but it sure sounds like there was something in the water, something that was making everyone sick. Revenge of the Cybermen isn't a terrible Doctor Who story. If anything, it's hobbled by being the last story of Tom Baker's first season, and as such, from a budget standpoint, it has the leftovers and table scraps left by such hugely influential and popular stories as Genesis of the Daleks, the Santaran Experiment, and the Ark in Space. The good news is that by setting the story on the Nervous Space Station again, the excellent sets from the Ark in Space get to be used again, which we'll talk about in a moment. Now, even with that in mind, the story does not do the Cybermen any favors. 
They'd been gone for a long time from Doctor Who, but you'd think that if the Cybermen were either returning or revenging, this return would be handled in more grand style. Instead, what you have here is a grand total of three whole Cybermen, the smallest number of them that Doctor Who's audience had ever seen. With 1960s episodes like The Moon Base and The Tomb of the Cybermen, there were lots of Cybermen on screen at the same time, and that was what had built them up into the second most popular enemy next only to the Daleks. The Cybermen were unstoppable, and there were lots of them, and kids could do their best to imitate Cybermen voices on the playground. With that context in mind, the Cybermen are really underwhelming here. And although there there is kind of a story reason for that, the Doctor says that the Cybermen have... Uh, you know, been whittled down to a very minuscule number uh, due to wars between humans and Cybermen. But in any case, the Cybermen wouldn't return to Doctor Who until the 1980s, at which point they did return to their former glory. As a piece of television, it's very mid-70s BBC. Shouty, snippy, stagey performances from the guest characters, with one of the guest stars telegraphing from 12 miles away that he's up to no good. If Kelman had been played with a just a bit of charm and less obvious disdain for everyone around him, it would have been a genuine surprise when he started doing obviously super shady stuff. But between the script, the actor, and the director, that wasn't the choice that was made. I will say this, though. I never get tired of those nervous station sets. Now, sure, the shots with the corridors still make it easy to see that there's black cloth with Christmas lights outside the windows, and so that's space and the stars, and that's windows in air quotes, by the way, because there is no pane of glass to be seen. But the corridor sets especially are so well made, it's easy to see why they were used twice in this season. That being said, you remember what I said about Revenge of the Cybermen having a table scrap budget? Watch the scenes where the Doctor and Harry and Sarah are gingerly walking around the corpses of the plague victims, because a lot of those corpses are kind of hilarious mannequins, and it's super obvious which ones, what with the plastic hair and being so stiff that their heads don't sag to the floor. It's not supposed to be funny, but it kind of is. The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to thelogbook.com's Patreon supporters. And if you love Retrogram, join them in helping out. Every little bit helps keep thelogbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Kevin and Darwin and Javier and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash thelogbook. Or you can make a one-time donation at coffee, that's ko-fi.com slash thelogbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, shower curtains, yes, shower curtains, and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com, including brand new designs to show your love for Retrogram. Or you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. And hey, if you want to binge the entire first season of Star Trek Picard, you can sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. Thanks for listening. Everybody take care of yourselves. <laughs>